Today we get to continue our series called Equipping the Work of Ministry. And so we've been learning uh, a lot about our spiritual gifts. Now, we just came out of a series before this that was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Now we're moving into, okay, what are the gifts of the Spirit and how do we use them in order to bring glory to God and, and really serve others? And so this uh, has been a, a neat sermon series already. I uh, want to just continue pushing forward on it today and, uh, and talk about really uh, something so important that it really should define every single church. Now, I've heard a lot of stories about churches, um, and maybe you have too, that, that I would, to be nice, I would say they're not very friendly churches. Maybe you've experienced that before. I've heard of people going to churches and they sit down and someone walks up to them and says, you're in my seat, you've got to move. Have you heard of things like that happening before? You know, because that's the seat I sat in, that's the seat my parents sat in, that's the seat my grandparents sat in, and you can't have my seat. So you got to move. I've heard stories about people going into churches, and they walk in, they sit down, listen to the whole service, get up and leave, and the entire time, not one single person talks to them or interacts with them or shakes their hand or says hello. And so it's just like they're invisible. And so have you heard uh, stories like that? Or maybe even worse, I've heard stories of people going into a church and being asked to leave. Uh, and this still does happen. I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you because I've heard so many stories of it. People walking into churches and being asked to leave because they're not dressed nice enough. Or because they have tattoos. Or because they don't look the right way, whatever that right way is supposed to be. That, that bothers me a lot. That, that really does. And the, the, the one thing that ties all of those, uh, the one common characteristic of every story like that is that church has a lack of love. That, that's really at the root of it. It's a church that doesn't have love for the very people that they're trying to reach. It's a church that is turned inward. And that, that just, I'm just going to jump right in. My, my first point this morning is simply this. Love should be the defining characteristic of every church. If, if, you want to, if people are talking about Cornerstone, my hope, my prayer, my, my desire is that they would say, that's a loving church. That's a church that I felt welcomed at. That's a church that as soon as I walked in, I knew I was loved. That should be the defining characteristic of every church. Now, we're going to unpack that a little bit and, and explain that. Uh, and really, in, in the same passage we were in last week in 1 Corinthians, we're going to keep going there. I, I read a great quote about love this week, and the quote came from a sermon that was preached by Dr. Haddon Robinson. And he said this, he said, Love is that thing which, if a church has it, it doesn't really need much else. And if it doesn't have it, whatever else it has doesn't really matter very much. Doesn't that, isn't that good? I mean, that's like, if you have it, that's all that really matters. If you don't have it, nothing else really matters. And so that's why this morning, I'm just going to push a little bit on this. In a sermon like this, it makes us think about how loving are we really? 
Because every single church, even those churches that I mentioned earlier that would do those things, they would say, oh, we're a loving church. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we want to reach people. Um, but then they don't put it into practice. And so this takes a little bit of self-awareness to say, okay, where are we really? So last week we learned that every believer has been given a spiritual gift, and that gift is needed and necessary for the church to be effective. So in other words, if you're not using your gifts in church, then someone else is missing out on that blessing of you serving. You're withholding something that everyone else needs. And so it's not just a matter of you not serving. It's a matter of missing out on the blessing and the opportunity uh, to, to, to glorify God. And then we talked about our role as a church is to equip you to help you discover your role. That's and we, going back to the first week in Ephesians 4. That's what we talked about. The goal of leadership is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, that's what leaders are supposed to do. Leaders aren't paid. They're not hired. They're not put in their positions of leadership to do everything. They're put in positions of leadership to equip you so that together we can do the work of ministry. That's the way an effective church really works. We talked about the different types of gifts and how we come together as the body of Christ uh, to work together. And at the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we were last week, it says this. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. And so Paul, after talking about we're all one body, we all have our, our role in that body, we all have different gifts, we're all different, but yet we come together around this common mission. Then he, he says, but there's a better way to live, and let me tell you about it. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 13. And, and so uh, before I get there, let, let's talk about it a little bit. According to the Pew Research Center, about half of U.S. adults say that they have looked for a new church at some time in their life. Most people choose a church based on the quality of the preaching or whether they feel welcomed by the church's leaders or the style of the service. Uh, and if you go by those criteria, if you look um, at the church in Corinth in New Testament times, this church should have been your top choice to go to. When you look at those criteria that we use today to pick a church, this church was something special. Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he said this. He said, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. It boasted some of the New Testament's leading teachers. Guys like Peter, Apollos, and Paul all preached here at Corinth. This city in which it met, it met was, it was a hub for travel. It was a hub for uh, the wealthy people in the region. It was a very prominent city. But, and, and then I read this, and it was kind of interesting. It said, despite these advantages, the church in Corinth was also deeply troubled. Members were divided into factions, uh, identifying with their favorite teachers. Uh, some were living immoral lives, and and others were confused about how to live as Christians in a pagan culture. Other people misunderstood the core doctrines of the faith, and some of the church's worship practices were disruptive. 
And if these issues weren't enough, then Paul faced opposition from some in the church who questioned his credentials. And all of these things are what prompted Paul to write. And it says, we often romanticize the New Testament church. But the study of 1st and 2nd Corinthians encourages us to discover that their church was not that different from our own. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible just doesn't tell us all the good stories. It tells us the struggles. It tells us where we can learn. It tells us where we can identify with the same problems. And, and I honestly, I think our churches today struggle with a lot of the same problems that we see right here. But yet we have access to the same spiritual power. We still have the same Holy Spirit in us. And, and so that's why it's so important that we study things like this so that we don't make the same mistakes. And so um, if you look at what's happening here uh, in the Corinthian church, it was a church that really liked the dramatic. They liked the big dramatic spiritual experiences. They loved supernatural gifts, but they used them for themselves. They didn't use them to help others. It was more about what can I do to, to kind of show off in, in a way. And so that's why Paul is writing here and saying, okay, there's a problem here. There's a problem. And um, each of us have been given spiritual gifts, but we're to use them in love and we're to use them to build up the whole body of Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, we, we see Paul talk about the problems of disunity. Uh, then in chapters 12 and 13, what Paul does, he, he says, this is what happens when a church... Uh, really comes together. He talks about the unity of the body and how we have different gifts, but the leadership comes from Jesus, who's the head. And then today, what we're going to learn about is that many people have gifts, but they're all meaningless unless they're done in love. So uh, that brings us to the next, my next point this morning as we jump into 1 Corinthians 13. Spiritual gifts without love are worthless. Doesn't matter how gifted you are, if you don't have love, then it doesn't matter how talented, how gifted, how charismatic you are, your gifts are worthless without love. And so Paul, he, he has this lofty goal that if you will act in unity, it's going to build up the, the body when people use their gifts. And he tells them how to do it. So let's dig in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. Says if I and this is a this is a very familiar passage. You've heard it at every wedding you've probably ever been to, right? If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't have didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So this is how it opens up. It's like all of this stuff that you think is important, it means nothing if you don't have love. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, few chapters in the Bible have suffered more misinterpretation and misapplication than 1 Corinthians 13. 
If you divorce this from its context, it becomes a hymn to love or a sentimental sermon on Christian brotherhood. Many people fail to see that Paul was still dealing with the Corinthians' problems when he wrote these words. The abuse of the gift of tongues, division in the church, the envy of each other's gifts, selfishness, impatience with one another in the public meetings, and behavior that was disgracing the Lord. In the midst of that is when he wrote these words. In the midst of that, that's when he goes on this discussion about love. So the love we read about as we go through 1 Corinthians 13, and it goes on, you know, the love is patient and kind and all that does not boast, that it's not envy. And that whole passage is not really a wedding passage. It's a, pas- it's a passage uh, written to a church that was being selfish, It was a passage that was written to a church that was misusing their spiritual gifts. And he's telling them, without love, everything you have is worthless. You're missing the whole point. And so it doesn't matter how talented and gifted you are. If you lack love, your effort is worthless. It sounds pretty extreme. Because you would would think, well, he's saying without love, you wouldn't be as effective. Effective, or you could do more if you did have love. He's saying without love, it's worthless, it's nothing. You lose every bit of your influence when you don't have love. He's saying, I read this this weekend, it's so good. He said, if you put it in slightly different terms, Paul is saying as clearly as he can that character always trumps gifting. So the virtues of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit are always to be valued above His gifts. One of the most dangerous and destructive things that can happen in the life of a local church is when people prize a person's gifting above their character. When you look at someone and say, but they're so talented, you overlook their their lack of love. I've been listening to a podcast for the last several weeks, and um, it's, it's really interesting. It's about a church out on the West Coast that was over 15,000 members, and this all happened a few years ago. Um, had a very popular pastor. You've probably heard of him before, and a very impressive public speaker. He would get up, preach sermons like an hour long, a very doctrinal theology-based uh, pastor, huge church. You think a church over 15,000 members, um, but, it's, um, but now that church no longer exists. And so what happened? It's a church that its leadership was big on judgment and low on love. It was a church that its pastor was young and a gifted teacher, but he was not able to control his temper or control his thirst for power. And so as the church was, the church was growing, so everybody looked at this church as an example. of Look at how effective this church is. Look at how it's growing. And because of that, they overlooked, right, the character problems in leadership. They overlooked the anger. They overlooked the spiritual abuse. They overlooked the problems in that church. And so everybody just said, but they're growing, so they must be doing something right. I'm here to tell you a church can be big and still not have love. A church can look on the outside like it's effective and still be missing the point. This is why it's so scary to me. It can happen to any church. 
This is, this, this is like a wake-up call, right, to the American church today that just because it looks on the outside like you're doing good, it doesn't mean you have love. The same thing was true of the Corinthian church. On the outside, they had it all. Outside, they were an effective church. It, it, it was dramatic. It was a big experience, and it was growing, and, 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 but they had problems. With this church out on the West Coast, it, what happened is finally it caught up to them. The pastor had to resign. When he resigned, people left the church. Giving dried up, and all of a sudden, they had all this property, all these churches, all this big thing. They couldn't support it. They had to close the doors and sell it off. So a church went from 15,000 to to zero in a matter of months. Scary, isn't it? And and it it all comes down to a lack of love. The type of love that Paul talks about here... Uh, and you've heard this before. You've probably heard sermons about this. It's an agape type love. It's the self-sacrificial love. It's a, a deep love uh, that that is able to to sacrifice your own, uh, really your own comfort for the sake of others. And I, I read this definition this week from a guy named Sam Storms, and he said this. He said, "Love is the overflow of our delight in God." that joyfully cherishes and seeks the best interest of another, regardless of the cost to oneself. I like that definition of love. It's a little long, a little wordy. But that's really what love is. It's an overflow of our delight in God. So it comes from God. God is love. But it, it, it cherishes, it seeks the best interest of another, regardless of the cost to oneself. Doesn't matter the cost to me. I'm going to seek the welfare, the, the benefit the, uh, of others over my own. And so when you look at a church that, uh, that collapses, you look at the Corinthian church. It, they were not thinking this way. It was a church that was about themselves. Look at me. Look at how gifted I am. Look at what we're doing. Look at what we're accomplishing. Look at these gifts that I have. And they literally thought they were God's gift to to others. And Paul is saying, you're not God's gift. Your gifts are so you can serve each other. Your gifts are not about you. They're for the benefit of others. And that kind of brings me uh, really to my next point. Love is so much more than just a feeling or an emotion. I think we view it sometimes like this. There's an old, uh, I, I was just thinking about this, and only a few of you in here will probably get this, but there's an old cheesy rap song called Love is a Verb. Love is a Verb. Yeah, a few of you know what I'm talking about. DC Talk song. And as cheesy as that is, that's true. Love is a verb. It's an action. Love is a way of being as a person, a way of thinking, acting, and living in, in fact, it's really all about being Christ-like. And so what the Spirit's role in our life in is to reproduce the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the primary way that is seen is through our love. Uh, if you go back uh, and, and look in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this love that he has for other people. This love where it's not about him, it's about how he can reach others. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, it says, Even though I'm a free man with no master, I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. 
When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. But when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. And so when I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When, when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share in its blessing. This is what love looks like. It's not about yourself. It's not about your preferences, your desires. Your, it's about I truly care about other people where I'm going to lay all of that stuff aside and I'm going to act upon it. That's how he demonstrates love. He also tells the Corinthians, hey, you need to imitate me, right? You need to be imitators of me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Love is the way of being that is so prevalent in our life that it affects everything in our life. And so then Paul starts explaining what does this love look like? What does this love look like? It's so much more than romantic love. In verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up and never loses faith. It's always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance. So if I just pause right there for a minute, this is what we've all heard. We've all applied this in a marriage relationship, but have you applied it in a church setting? for how we treat each other. It's, a, it's not just romantic love. It's a way of life. It's a way of living where Jesus is at the center of everything. Then he goes on in verse 8 to say, prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge, it will become useless, but love will last forever. Uh, there's coming a time, right, where our gifts are not needed and will not be used, but love is going to last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections, reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity." All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Such a beautiful passage here. Such a beautiful passage that, uh, that love is the greatest thing. It's going to last forever. It's what we need. And so what Paul talks about here is so countercultural. It goes against envy and pride and, and the self-centeredness that they had. And instead it says, okay, you need to really think about others. I think that's why it speaks so clearly to our culture, our society, our world today. Because we struggle with the exact same thing. 
you look at our world today, it's all about your, it's all about self. It's about your self-awareness, your self-esteem, your self-acceptance, your self-image. It's all about how you are perceived by others. It's all about getting ahead. It's all about, it's all about us. And the, the countercultural message is, no, it's not all about us. It's all about Jesus. It's all about how we can live in a world and not be the center of attention. And so Christ has to remain the example. So uh, the envy, the, the boasting, the rudeness, the arrogance, all of that stuff, he turns upside down. Instead, it's patience and love and rejoicing in truth. Uh, and, you know, I, I would also say that in our world today, People get hung up and say, well, to be a loving church means you have to accept everything or condone everything. But I, I, I'm so thankful that in this, the middle of this whole passage about love, he says love does not rejoice in, in evil or in wrongdoing, right? It rejoices in the truth. And, and so you can be loving and yet still stand up for the truth. Love doesn't mean that we have to go along with everything in the world. Love means that we still care about those people even when they're doing things that go against God's word. We still reach out to them. We still have a message of hope for them. You know, as I was reading over this passage this week, you know, you look at all these positive statements. These could all be applied to God. The, the patient, kind, all that stuff. That's all God. But all the negative ones could be applied to us, right? Uh, you look at God. He's patient. He's kind. He rejoices in the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But what about us? Are we envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, insisting upon our own way, irritable and resentful? You know, I, I look at that. All these good things are what the, the picture of Jesus. All the bad things are a picture of me sometimes. Picture of me when I haven't had supper. Picture of me when we were driving in Baltimore traffic earlier this week. <laughs> Jennifer and I had to go to Baltimore this week. And um, interestingly enough, it was, uh, we had to, to go and, and do some family stuff and help clean out my aunt who recently passed away her house. And we were up there and we only got the, 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 uh, the northern salute twice driving. <laughs> I got it once and Jennifer got it once. And so Jennifer's like, oh, don't look. And neither time we were doing anything wrong. One time I was in the left lane driving and I was only going 15 over the speed limit. And I got the, the salute because I wasn't going fast enough. And then the other time the person just didn't know how to drive and got mad at Jennifer. But <laughs> and you're like, you're number one. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm driving. All right. My response is to not be paid. Jennifer is so she's so much more mature than I am. Her her response is, "Don't look at them. They're just they're having a bad day. It's all right." <laughs> My response is, "If you do that in the South, um, I know Jesus, and let me introduce you to him right now." <laughs> that's my response. That uh, that's that's. I mean, okay. But is that any better? Because I mean, I'm not real. I didn't salute him back. You'll be glad to know. I did, I go, what are you doing? That just reminded me of the culture we live in today. People are impatient. They're rude. Uh, they got to get their own way. They're in a hurry. They don't care about anybody else. 
Uh, it's interesting too, and it just, it's just a cultural thing, but we noticed in the stores up there, you go to the grocery store, we're used to like people talking to each other. It's like nobody talks to each other. Everybody's in a hurry. It's about you. It's the world we live in, and, and don't think it can't happen in small towns too, because it's gonna, it, that's the way our world is changing. And so you read something like this, man, it's like, okay, there's some work we've got to do on ourselves. Some work we've got to do on our churches. And so how do we handle it when we're sinned against? How do we forgive? How do we deal with all of this stuff that's happening in our world? It's love. It's this passage right here. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. It's boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wrong. That's the type of love we're called to have in, the, in a world that doesn't have a lot of work, that doesn't have a lot of love. And so we've got to, if we're using our gifts, this is what it looks like. This is what it really looks like. In 1 Corinthians 14, so right after all of this in 1 Corinthians 13, it just goes right in. Let love be your highest goal. That's, that's your goal. Let, let love be the goal that you're aspiring to. And I'm just telling you, for many of us, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. There are times I'm not as loving as I need to be to my family, to others, to drivers in Baltimore. Um, there are times that we need to work on our love, right? Um, and so in the context of all of these chapters, Paul is talking about your, their, their jealousy, their pride, their selfishness within the church, and I wish I could say, well, when people get together in church, they behave nicely. Have you ever been to a business meeting that went off the rails in a church? The love is, and, and I'm just telling I've seen a few of these, and I've heard horror stories of people shouting. I've heard stories of people getting punched out in business meetings at church. Fights breaking out. That's, that's real loving, right? Let's shout at each other and cuss each other out and let's honor God together. Let's be patient and kind. That's the type of situation that Paul is addressing and it still happens today. That's why we have to work so hard at being loving. That means everybody that walks through this door should feel loved and welcomed when they arrive here at Cornerstone. It doesn't happen by accident. It means every single one of you have a responsibility to look out and see people who may be new or confused or lost and say, hey, let me help you. What's your name? Uh, here, just to, to, to introduce yourself, just to say, hey, you know, uh, how are you doing today? How can I pray for you today? Uh, there are just so many little ways that we show love. And it, but at the root of it, it just means that we're not thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about others. And so uh, Paul is just writing all of this um, about just to, to address what's happening in that church. And and so, so many people, when they come to the end of their life, they regret all the, the time, all the energy that they've spent on things that mean absolutely nothing. And, and some people have spent their whole life accumulating wealth and possessions and stuff and, and trying to be successful. Some people have lived their whole life trying to 
be popular and well-liked. But in the end, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, he's saying to us, none of that's going to last. None of that is important. It's all going to pass away. What will last? He said three things, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 13, this is how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. So again, love is this overflow of our delight in God that joyfully cherishes and seeks the best interest uh, of another, regardless of the cost to ourselves. This is exactly the type of love that God demonstrated towards us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Romans 5 tells us. He loves us. He was committed to us. And at at such a cost, it it cost God his own son. And so how does this relate to, to 1 Corinthians 13? This is the type of love that we are challenged to share. It's the distinguishing mark, the the defining characteristic of the life of a believer. John said it this way in John 13, verse 35. He said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So, So my question this morning, one, have you experienced that love? Do you know, do you know that you are loved by God and that Jesus loved you so much that he died to take your sin to take your punishment. He died to rescue you and to reconcile you back to God. Do you, have you received that love? Have you put your, your, your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ to save you? And then secondly, if you have, then are you demonstrating that type of love to each other? That's, that's what we're called to do. That's why we exist as a church, to go and make disciples. How do we do that? We do it with love. We do it with love. And so uh, this morning, I just want you to think about that. One, do you know Jesus? And secondly, how are you using your gifts to display that love? Let's pray and the praise team will come back up. Heavenly Father, today as we looked at this very familiar passage, my prayer is that for each and every one of us, that we would understand that when we come together, when we worship, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And we, want, we need to do as many, we need to reach out to others. We need to share that love with others so they can experience that same love we have experienced. And Lord, even when we leave this place, the defining characteristic for each and every one of our lives should be love. It should not be impatience. It should not be irritability. It should not be rudeness. It should not be boasting about our own accomplishments. It should be patience and kindness and gentleness should be the fruit of the Spirit that we've been studying and talking about. And so, Heavenly Father, today, I I just want to pray for this church that you would continue to allow us to be a church known for our love, a church known about our care for those who uh, have not yet met Jesus. And Heavenly Father, um, just give us the patience, the love, the Uh, the kindness that we need to do that. Help us stand for truth, but to do it in a loving and kind way. Help us to to, to be willing to to reach those who um, are unlovable, 
and, and not be scared to talk to, to people who uh, may look different than we do. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning. We thank you for the love of Jesus that has changed us, that has saved us. And if anybody here that is watching or listening today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, this is your chance. This is your chance to, to accept the love of God. He loved you so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the promise we have from God. And so my, my invitation is if you don't know Jesus, would you accept him? Would you put your trust, your faith in him, and would you follow him? Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We're thankful for your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.